welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Special counsel Robert Mueller has indicted 12 Russian intelligence officers for hacking the Democratic National Committee, the Clinton presidential campaign, and the Democratic Congressional Committee. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced the indictment this afternoon. One of those defendants and a 12th Russian military officer are charged with conspiring to infiltrate computers of organizations involved in administering elections, including state boards of election, secretaries of state, and companies that supply software used to administer elections. The Russian officers were also charged with stealing the information of about 500,000 voters. Joining me is is Elie Hanig of Russia. University. He's a former federal prosecutor. Ellie, today's indictments did not include the allegation that Russian efforts succeeded in influencing the election results of the 2016 election. How important are they? Uh, yeah, look, I don't know that that conclusion really means much. I mean, it, it's really unknowable if you think about it. What, what we do know is that these emails were leaked. They were leaked in the months running up to the election, and that millions or tens of millions of United States voters saw those emails, and and I think unquestionably they hurt the Democrats. Now, can you know how many people changed their mind because of these emails? No, that's impossible to know. It's unknowable. I don't don't think anyone would ever be able to look at anything and say that flipped the election. But this had an impact. There's there's no question this impacted people, and it it was a factor. Rosenstein brushed aside a question about the timing, but it seems glaring that it comes two days before Trump's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin and the day after congressional Republicans attacked the special counsel's investigation as biased during the testimony of the FBI agent Peter Strzok. Is that timing just coincidence? Yeah, I mean, that, that is what Rosenstein said today. It's not, not coincidence. He just said, look, this, this is when we've concluded our factual investigation and when the grand jury has come back with an indictment. But, of course, the timing matters, whether by design or not. Um, you know, it, Rosenstein did say that he had briefed the president a few days ago. Um, you know, you could sort of look at that both ways. You could look at it as, uh, you know, him sending a message to the president, you know, don't get too cozy uh, with Putin. Um, you could look at it as, you know, an assurance that the president won't go in and, and declare that, well, Putin told me they had nothing to do with it, and then two days later, the indictment comes out. But I do take Rosenstein at his word that this was just when the work got wrapped up. I mean, things happen so rapidly in this case that any day is going to be near some other day. So he did say that when asked about how he informed the president, he said he needs to understand what information we've uncovered because he has to make very important decisions for the country, so he needs to understand what evidence we have of foreign election interference. He also said that this is about the corruption of elections. It's important to not see it as Republicans or Democrats. So he seemed to be sending some kind of message there. Yeah, I, th- I think Rosenstein's right. I mean, you know, it would be it would be really harmful to our democracy if, if the president went in, had this meeting with Putin, and and sort of cleared him and said, ah, he said he didn't do it. I believe him. And then shortly after this came out, um, and I think it's important to inform the way the president interacts with Putin and interacts with Russians, um, that we know now for sure who did this. We didn't know who did this before today's indictment. We now know who did it. And it was not just Russians generally. It was Russian state actors, these intel officers from the GRU. 
Um, so that's that's very important, and, and I think it's something that the president and our entire uh, government needs to know in dealing with Russia moving forward. There was something that um, I'm curious about. It could, it could be nothing, but he said it at one point that these uh, the information was transferred to another organization not named in the indictment and timed for release. Does yep. that does that indicate that another another <clears throat> indictment is coming about that organization, or they said they used yep. it as a pass through to release the documents? Yeah, th- there absolutely could be, and there's a number of indications in this indictment of places where th- there could be further in- further indictments. I think I think that organization appears to be WikiLeaks. Um, that's just sort of informed speculation. But um, you know, the White House, if you've seen, has already announced a statement saying, "Well, nobody, uh, in a, no, you, no Americans have been indicted, and there's no connection to anything." relating to the Trump campaign. But you, if you look at this indictment, you can see areas, including the one you just cited, where there could be American actors, American individuals, and American-based companies or corporate entities that could be the next shoes to drop. You know, Ellie, what you said uh, before sort of rings rings true, because I, are we looking for too much from Robert Mueller's investigation? Are we looking for like a direct connection to some influence in the election or to someone? And are we ne- perhaps not going to get that? Yeah, I mean, I think what Robert Mueller is doing is what all good investigators doing. It's building a case block by block, piece by piece. And if you, if you look at it in totality, you know, we've seen the numbers. We now have over 30 indictments, five convictions. But, you know, this is another important block. And now this establishes there were two main ways the Russians tried to and did infiltrate our election. The first one we already knew about from the Manafort uh, and Papadopoulos and Flynn indictments, which is they tried to provide or sell dirt on Hillary Clinton to, directly to the Trump campaign. This is now the second way. This is the hacking into the DNC and the, this sort of slow release of emails in a drip uh, by DC leaks and Guccifer in, in the days leading up to the election. So, uh, so you know, it's, it's, it's piece by piece, and I, and I do think you're right. I don't think we're ever going to see one specific document that says, here's everything that ties everything all together, but he's building, and you can see him building. We keep on waiting for that, though, <laughs> in any event, <laughs> because these all seem, you know, as you said, it's a drip here, a drip there, and, and there's no response to allegations that come out in the public. Yeah, well, what, where I think we may see it all tied together is if and when Mueller uh, files a report with the House of Representatives, you know, uh, uh, whether it's recommending impeachment or not. But I think that's going to be the ultimate sort of, uh, uh, you know, opus that ties it all together. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for being here, Ellie. That's Ellie Hoffman of Rutgers University. He's a former federal prosecutor. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul has frequently voiced his firm views on privacy. He spoke about the issue in a lengthy Senate speech in 2015. The bulk collection of all Americans' phone records all of the time is a direct violation of the Fourth Amendment. So could Paul's firm views on privacy present a seemingly overlooked obstacle to Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court? Joining me is Corey Brettschneider, a political science professor at Brown University. Corey, how different are Kavanaugh's views on privacy from Paul's? Are, are they different enough to cause a problem? Uh, we need to know. I mean, he's, uh, as a lower court judge, said... Uh, not that much. He has a dissent uh, in a case about abortion, for instance, which is based on a uh, broad right to privacy that the courts read into the Constitution. 
um, into a number of its provisions, including the Fourth Amendment. Uh, but we don't know what he would do as a Supreme Court ju- judge or justice, sorry. And so that's why it's so important to ask him questions. Unlike lower court judges, uh, Supreme Court justices can overturn uh, even long-standing precedent. Uh, so that's one of the central questions for him, is what he thinks of the broad right to privacy in the Constitution, not just in the Fourth Amendment, but in the idea uh, in Griswold versus Connecticut that there's a broad right of privacy in matters like uh, choice in abortion, uh, in the use of contraception. Uh, and so we just need to know a, a lot more about that. I, in my reading, I came across some... Um some literature that said that his past rulings backed the buildup and intelligence gathering on Americans after the September 11th attacks. Did you um, see that? That's po- I, I haven't uh, come across enough uh, to give you a definitive answer on that. I mean, the areas that we're starting to see are there's this dissent in the abortion case. A lot of scrutiny has been paid to his his work for um, Ken Starr, uh, and uh, originally he seemed to favor pretty broad terms of impeachment for a president and even indictment. And then more more and more, he's favored uh, increasing executive power. Uh, now, that could have implications for the issue that you raise. He also has, uh, in an op-ed that's just been uncovered, uh, seems to suggest that a president is actually immune from indictment. Uh, so that would grant, uh, if that's right, a uh, huge uh, leeway to the executive in, in all sorts of places, uh, including possibly uh, immunity uh, even in the use of criminal uh, criminal use of uh, information or information gathering. How much can the senators press him on that? Uh, it's a myth that they can't. Uh, after the Bork hearings, uh, 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 the Heritage Foundation and others suggested that there was a thing called the Ginsburg Rule, which was supposed to be the idea that, that um, nominees are not supposed to talk about their views about past cases. But if you look at what Ginsburg actually did, she uh, was very forthcoming on her views on abortion. So this is kind of a made-up thing. Uh, under Article One. Uh, the Senate's supposed to be an equal partner with the president in vetting nominees on their constitutional views. So I think they not only can, but are obligated to directly ask about things like uh, the right to privacy, the right to abortion, uh, and uh, Roe versus Wade in particular. Uh, but they cannot ask for a binding commitment for future cases or ask about pending cases, uh, specific cases before the court. That's the distinction. If we look at the last justice to be confirmed and to go through these hearings, Gorsuch, he mm-hmm. got he got by saying he wasn't going to give opinions on a variety, a host of topics. And he just refused to give, you know, he said, I can't give my opinion on what's going to be coming up and I'll follow precedent. But, you know, you didn't really hear what his what his opinions were. They seem to be able to slide. Uh, I think that was one of the worst uh, travesties, uh, that hearing and, and an instance of the Senate's dysfunction, uh, the fact that they let him get away with that. In fact, he didn't say that he would follow precedent when he was repeatedly asked to give his opinion about precedents like the one that I just mentioned, Griswold versus Connecticut, which held that a broad right to privacy gave individuals the right to use contraception, including in their own bedrooms with their spouses. Uh, do you agree with that precedent? Would you uphold it? What he repeatedly said was, Griswold versus Connecticut or other cases are precedents or is a precedent. Uh, he never said anything about whether he would or wouldn't uphold particular precedents. So it's very important to not allow this sort of very easy uh, legal trick to, to uh, suffice as an answer to fundamental questions before us. This is the swing vote likely on cases like Roe versus Wade, uh, possibly on gay rights cases. 
Uh, Justice Kennedy was often the swing vote, sometimes voted with the liberals, sometimes with conservatives. So it's essential this time uh, to not let him get away with uh, non-answers. What other areas do you see sharp differences between Kavanaugh and Kennedy? Uh, Justice Kennedy uh, is uh, goes down in history because he really led the court in recognizing a variety of gay rights in a case called Romer. Uh, he said that uh, legislation based on animus towards uh, towards uh, gay individuals uh, was unconstitutional. In that instance, it was a plebiscite that revoked many civil rights for gay uh, gay people. Uh, uh, he of course wrote the opinion about the right to gay marriage. Now, that's based on what I think Judge Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh has said are, is a conception of unenumerated rights, which he's skeptical of. And he's sympathetic to Justice Scalia and others who are very critical of that jurisprudence. And uh, so I don't know that he would respect these precedents. I think he probably thinks they're wrongly decided. And I, I think that there's a chance that we could see some retrenchment in the area of gay rights. Uh, abortion, of course, and then that executive power issue that I raised is fundamental. Uh, this court might decide the question of whether or not a president can or cannot be indicted by the special prosecutor, or more radically, whether, as some have suggested, uh, the investigation is unconstitutional itself because the president can't be subject to investigation by his own subordinates. That's a theory that's currently been floated. And this nominee uh, might decide that. So we need to know what he thinks about it. And um, so what's facing the, the Democrats who want to stop this? are not only the Republican votes, but also they have three Democratic senators running in red states that Trump won in 2016, and they have to hold those senators. And I've been looking at some of their voting patterns, and they vote mm-hmm. with the Republicans on a lot of these important issues. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this shouldn't be a partisan issue when it comes to the most fundamental rights under our Constitution, which include privacy, include the idea, I think, that a president is not above the law and can't get away with uh, criminal activity. Uh, that was, a, a, to me, a, a principle, at least, if not the specific uh, question, but the principle was established in, during the Nixon administration. Uh, and gay rights are such a part of the fabric of constitutional law now, too, that I would think that really any, not just party, but any senator uh, that claims to believe in the Constitution needs to uh, insist that this nominee answer questions about his views on these precedents. And that would include Democrats, Republicans, certainly people like Susan Collins uh, and Rand Paul, if he's serious about the Constitution. I think I'd like to see him take a lead role in, in well, questioning this nominee. We look forward to the questioning. Thanks so much. Corey. That's Corey Brettschneider. He's a political science professor at Brown University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.